Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. So Jay, I think I have some good news for you. Um, We'll see, I'll find out. Um, But we are not going to talk about the 80-20 rule today. I don't know if you consider that good news or bad news. That's good because as you tell me, I almost always get it wrong. So that's, right. although one of these times I got to get it right. I mean, I, I don't know if you do. The according old, to the 80 20 rule. Yeah. My canard or, is 80. Or not. Yeah. 80% of the time people get the rule wrong or misstate it 20% of the time, something like that. Or 80% of people misstate it 20%. I don't know. We're not talking about it. We're talking about the 95 5 rule, which is a new sort of way to look at b2b marketing in an article from marketing week that you sent me a while ago and i read it and i just found myself nodding my head like saying amen i agreed with everything um and we'll talk through a little bit about what that is uh today um and how people who are engaged in content marketing thought leadership marketing can apply this rule um just a couple of things that stood out at me one is this sentence that i wanted to read to you from the article It says that many B2B marketers seem to think that marketing works through persuasion, pushing buyers down a funnel by explaining the product benefits. And um, two things that jumped out at me. One is I do think that is the sort of conventional wisdom about modern content marketing is you're trying to push people down a funnel. Um, But here's where I think people get it wrong. And I think this is what the article is talking about is that I think B2B marketers, especially those who are marketing sophisticated professional services would apply a, uh, a consumer marketing paradigm to the B2B market. I think that's where they get it wrong. They're looking at through the prism of where can I find buyers that are ready to buy right now and market to them aggressively and get them into my sales funnel and then start converting leads, you know, quickly. Um, and they did a survey and they found that 95% of B2B marketers thought that that's how it works. And then it says, well, that's not how it works. How does B2B marketing actually work? And they say, Jay, the exact opposite way. And I like for this is an article that's not contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. This is spot on. And so do you see the same thing? I'm curious. You sent it to me. Um, it must have struck a nerve with you. But what was your main takeaways from this 95-5 rule, which we'll get into? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, I think, along the lines of what we always preach. It's just packaged really nicely, right? Where this, this notion of um, you need to be marketing to a buyer, and in this case, a prospective client for whatever professional service you provide well before they are aware that they need you, right? Like mm-hmm. all of that, all of that hard work that needs to get done, all of those small deposits of trust that are required to get to the point where they're going to have a, have a high enough level of trust with you that you're an expert, that you're capable of solving the problem needs to be happening way, way before the moment of decision occurs. Because what people miss is the fact that if you're hoping to swoop in at the moment of decision, again, you're way too late. The decision's made over the course of 
months, if not years, not like days after someone you know, consciously recognizes the need for a service. Like when the, once the conscious recognition has occurred, like I need an estate plan or I need a litigator to help me with this commercial con breach of commercial contract issue. Like they've already made the decision or at least narrowed it down to the point where if you're not on their shortlist, you're not top of mind and not thinking of you, then, you know, forget about it. It's too late. So yeah. I think that's the, that's the main takeaway. They, they sum it up nicely at the end where they say, you know, just as in investing, we're told not to try to time the market, right? Because it's, this is never a good idea. Um, never try to time your client or customer either. Yeah, exactly. And so the rule, I guess, if uh, just to put the meat on the bone is the five represents the 5% of prospects who are currently in market for your service. And again, the conventional wisdom would be focus on that 5%. The problem, like you said, is that it's probably too late for those buyers. And instead, we should be focusing on the 95% who aren't in market um, in the way that you just stated. And we'll have some some tips on how to do that. Um, which I thought was really interesting because um, it's tough to preach patience when you're investing time and resources into marketing, but you really have to. Here's another uh, excerpt from the article that I thought was just spot on. Marketers don't move buyers in market. So you can't convince someone, in other words, now this is me paraphrasing, that they need to buy from you if they don't, haven't already self-identified that they have a need, right? I've never seen anything, any kind of ad persuade a B2B um, service consumer to just start buying and hiring people that they, they don't need. Right. Think of an attorney, right? You don't want to hire an attorney yeah. right, in most cases, but you will uh, when you need to. So marketers don't move buyers in market. Buyers move themselves in market based on their needs. Back to the article for an example, or for example, if an IT manager just purchased a brand new cloud computing solution yesterday, that need is gone and there's nothing a B2B marketer could do to generate an immediate sale. So what do you do? Give up, focus just on the 5% who are in market? No, you need to focus on the 95% the out of market buyers. So when they, as you suggest, when they're in market, move there on their own volition, you're already on the short list or maybe you even are the short list. I always think that that's the, you know, the, the paradox or the um the the ideal right is the i want to be the shortlist and so yeah. you do that through effective content marketing sharing expertise ideas etc which we've preached all along yeah i mean it's it's a i mean linkedin is a good example of this just to kind of contextualize and and talk a little more specifically um you know you it's really powerful to have to, and grow a you know relatively large following of your ideal client audience who are following along as you are creating and sharing content, um, never pitching your services, never trying to artificially generate demand for your services, right? Never mm -hmm. selling whatsoever, but day after day, just sort of you know being there, sharing your insights, sharing your ideas creating a data-driven feedback loop from your audience as to what issues they care about so that your content just keeps getting better and better. It's like this, you know, flywheel effect. You're more dialed in on what their needs are. And then, you know, the audience grows. And then at some point, you know, that 95-5 breakdown um, starts to you know, become significant when you get up to a certain level of followers. Like there's always going to be 5% of the people in your network who have needs and they're going to start calling you because you've been there all along, but you've never sold. 
You've never done anything to try to generate demand or capture demand. You're just there showing up, adding value, building trust, and they naturally start thinking of you. Again, who else are they going to go to, right? Are they going to go to the guy with the billboard or the TV commercial? No, they're going to go to the, the man or woman who has been building trust over the course of, of you know, not days, but months and years. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's two reasons why I think this is critical. One is I think because you need to re-examine uh, or adjust maybe your how, how you're measuring your business development success. So in terms of timeline and in terms of leads, a lot of times you don't know who that 5% is, right? So you don't, they don't self-identify. They don't, how often does somebody comment on your post and say, Hey, I'm actually in the market for this. What you just said sounds really good. Yeah. Send me some information. It's, it's rare. So you don't really know who that 5% is and you you'll be tempted to give up if you measure in too short of a time horizon because you won't see the immediate return. Um, And I think that's one mistake. But also the point that you make, I think is so critical, is that if you're focusing on that 5% and you're focusing on turning a sale around quickly, it's going to impact the content that you create, right? It's going to become more desperate. It's going to become more urgent. It's going to become more salesy because you realize that that 5% is a fleeting, you know, you've got a short little time horizon to capitalize on that 5% before they buy from another provider. So you end up doing things like pitching. You end up doing things like, quote unquote, pushing people down a sales funnel, you know, and you just get way too aggressive. And I don't know of any buyer of any product or service that likes to be sold. I I always say people like to buy things, but nobody likes to be sold. And so they'll turn a tin ear to your content. And then you've created content that is a glorified brochure and nobody's going to respond to it. So those are the two main reasons. Any Anything else and other than what we've already said, Jay, about why it's yeah. critical to rethink this rule? Yeah, well, I mean, let's just stay on the content theme because there's another sort of practical example that I see um, people do, and and sometimes I'll have clients like urge this, and I'll I'll push back every time, um, and hopefully it, it makes sense why in a moment when I explain it. But um, this is to me, uh, this is an example of trying to create scarcity and urgency in content marketing um, or thought leadership marketing, which is obviously antithetical to everything that we talk about, which is you know give away your ideas, build trust, all of those things. Um, so a client will, and I think this is a reflection of like, I need to generate demand now. Um, they'll you know, want an article written or they'll be writing an article themselves. And instead of like just laying it all out there and trying to produce a valuable piece of content for a reader who's going to have a takeaway and be like, oh, you know what? This person is clearly an expert and you know they'll file that away in their subconscious mind for later. Um, what they do with the article instead is create some ambiguity, or in particular, they'll they'll withhold sort of the conclusion or the the key takeaway, right? Mm-hmm. And what they'll say is, we don't want to give away everything for free. We don't want to give away the special sauce, or um, we want to we want them to call us. You know, they we want them to we want to make them curious as to what the answer is and get them to call us. That's that's the language you hear quite often, and that's just that's just horrible. You know, that's a horrible way to approach things. Um, because think about it, like in your own experience with other, in other instances where, you know, you go to see a movie 
And right at the point at which like the, you know, the, at the cliffhanger of the movie, the movie ends <laughs> and right. they say, come back, come back in two weeks, buy a ticket and we'll, we'll, we'll show you the ending. Um, not only will you be dissatisfied, you'll just be pissed. Right. right. Um, Said so, you'll never go see a movie by the, whoever put that together again. And, and the same sort of principle applies when it comes to your content, right? You, what you need to be doing with your content is, um, you know, opening a loop, meaning like, all right, why does this matter to the reader? And then closing the loop for the reader. Um, you can't leave those open loops for people. Uh, it's just going to turn them off. And the idea that someone's going to call you the person, because as if you're, as if what you're raising is unique and the answer that you have to the, what you raised in your article is you're the only person capable of providing that answer. It's, it's just crazy. You know, there's, there's 50 alternatives at least to every article that's written on internet by every lawyer. So you better write the best one. Otherwise it's just a pointless exercise. Right, exactly. What you're trying to do with thought leadership content marketing is you're trying to demonstrate that you don't know, show that you have the answers, right? And demonstrate that you have, um, expertise and knowledge and that you can solve problems. If you don't ever show that or you hide that behind a curtain, then how is anyone ever going to come to trust you or learn what you're all about? You know, we've talked about you and I, Jay, if you zoom out from there, even talking about the concept of gating content in general. So you're gating the whole thing behind some sort of firewall or permission, right? And so you're give me your email address and I'll share this content with you. And I long advocated for that approach as a way of capturing sort of prospects but going back to this rethinking the notion of driving people down a funnel and i just feel like there's it's too adversarial when you're withholding things from somebody and really don't you want to remove all friction between your expertise and somebody who might want to buy it someday i mean why would you yeah. create friction so we're just rethinking that whole yeah. thing as well yeah you have you have to because it's too competitive out there you know yeah. i mean there's too much good content. It's not too much noise in the sense of bad content. It's too much good content that you're competing with. You're competing with too many other good ideas to be, you know, becoming a gatekeeper because what you say is, is not unique, right? And there's other people that say it, uh, that can say it, will say it. Um, and if you're not putting yourself out there and impressing people with your ideas, you'll never get it. I mean, these are things you would never do in an in-person interaction, right? I mean, if you were at lunch <laughs> with somebody, would you, you know, and, and with prospective client, they ask, we're asking you questions. Would your answer to each one be, uh, hire me and I'll tell you, hire me and I'll tell you? <laughs> like, no, of course not. So we need to be thinking about doing the same thing when it comes to our content as well, which will help us to capitalize on the 95.5 rule. Yeah. You also wouldn't say, well, give me your business card and I'll send it to you. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Sign up for my newsletter and I'll send it to you. No, you just you answer the question. So this is a good segue maybe uh, into because we talk about how, you know, the wrong approach, just the mentally approaching content marketing mentally the wrong way will lead to maybe the creation of bad content. You also wrote something even as uh, hot off the presses today, I think, about some tips for writing great content. And you had some wonderful observations on what makes for great content and then some tips on how uh, how someone would execute that. So maybe we could segue into that if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. I mean, it's it's related. Um, I think some of this will be um, just, you know, standalone kind of tips, but maybe we could spend five minutes going through it because I think it'll be helpful. Um, I do think that this is another, you know, just as just as, that was sort of the philosophical framework to think about, you know, content marketing. 
thought leadership marketing. And now, you know, we're going to get really tactical and talk about like, all right, if you're bought, if you bought into that idea and you actually want to do this stuff, right. Like, here's how to think about it and go about it. And importantly, I mean, the main thing that I'm trying, I was trying to advocate for in this post was systemize your approach to as much as possible when it comes to this stuff, because, you know, you, you don't want to approach a writing an article as some bespoke service, right? Like sitting at the keyboard, white screen, blinking cursor, you know, blank page and, and, you know, just figuring out how to get into it from there. No, it's, it's very much a formulaic approach where within that formula, within that framework, you are, you know, kind of being an artist, having some creativity, but use the framework that works to gain attention from the audience you're trying to reach um, online in particular. So, so we'll start there. I mean, this is really about like writing effectively for a reader online. I mean, which is a unique skill set. I mean, everyone, you know, lawyers will talk about the need for, you know, training and, you know, continual improvement when it comes to legal writing. Every form of writing is like that. And so I don't know why anyone wouldn't think that way about how you're writing your blog posts, LinkedIn posts, all of these things have um, best practices to follow. So, all right. So with that stage being set, should we dig into it? Yeah, let's dig into it and change the subject so I don't have nightmares about a blank screen with a, a white screen <laughs> with a blinking cursor because that's a writer's yeah. uh, nightmare. Yeah. So, yeah, so right. we have four practical tips. Let's start with number one. Okay. So the first one, it, that segues nicely into it, which is that, um, you know, having worked on, observed, coached, trained, like seen hundreds, if not thousands of blog posts and written thousands of blog posts on law from websites, you know, my, my observation is that there are three sort of categories that maybe 90 plus percent of all legal blog posts on law firms websites fit into. So there's these three categories and um, call those the case law breakdown, the um, evergreen analysis and the future forecast. So that's basically case law breakdown. That's like, there's a new opinion. There's a new statute. Like here, this is, we're going to do a client alert explaining what that's all about. So that's pretty familiar with people, uh, to people. Then the evergreen analysis, this would be like, you know, um, timeless tips, or at least, you know, ones with relatively long-term, there's no temporal, like timely aspect to these things. It's like, you know, five, um, best practices for drafting commercial contracts, right? Um, those do change over time, but they don't change all that often. And then there's the future forecast. This is where you're sort of doing a, a look forward, you know, as mm -hmm. a thought leader and saying, here's what we see as the risks to come in your industry. This is our take on what things are going to be trending in 2023, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so each of those, why that's important is each of those categories has sort of a general framework that you can use a template structure as a starting point to write a good blog post. So the the example I used and sort of um, did uh, use as an example in the LinkedIn post was the case law breakdown. And in that case, most of these types of posts um, can fall into the following structure, which would be headline, introduction, Point one, point two, point three, and then a conclusion. So basically, what I'm trying to urge people to do is rather than like starting with that blank page, 
put these categories onto your page and then start using this as an outline. Your post may not fit neatly within those you know, sections necessarily. Maybe you have two points, maybe there's five, whatever, but you get the idea. Like don't, don't start with the blank page. And then on the top of the page, you know, identify the following. Um, you can use this heuristic, like for who, who's your target audience? And, um, you know, so that, like, what are you going to try to help them achieve through writing this article? So, you know, like, what is the audience? What is the goal or, or objective of writing this? What are you hoping to get out of it? Okay. So you've got that in mind. Then, um, you turn then to writing the headline. Um, and Tom, you know, you can, you can speak to this as well. I know you, you share this viewpoint that there's nothing more important in a post than your headline. And the reason for that is because it doesn't matter how great your analysis is within the post. Like I think the, the suggestion it's suggested that like 80% of a prospective reader's decision to like read your post is based on your headline. Does that sound right? Yeah, it absolutely sounds right. Um, not only to read the post, think about how they're going to find the post. They're either skimming the email that got sent to them or they're kind of thumbing through their LinkedIn feed or Facebook or Twitter or whatever. They're making split-second split decisions on whether they're going to completely stop what they were doing and invest time in what you've written. And if the headline doesn't sell them, then it doesn't matter what exists behind, you know, that gate, which is, there is, that's the gate, it's the, the, the click yep. of a link. So for sure. Totally. All right. So then, you know, what I did was provide a, a kind of a template uh, or framework for writing a headline for one of these case law breakdown posts. And there's other, I, I've been, I've been trying to, again, speaking of systemizing or systematizing this process, like there are conventions, there are sort of these headline structures that tend to work, that tend to generate clicks and attention and grab people's eyes online. So, so this would be one example of it. Now, this will be a little harder to do um, when I read this versus when someone was reading it themselves, but try to follow along. So what I wrote was the framework is blank things, and then in bracket, who's it for, need to know about, and then in brackets, what happened to brackets, why it matters. So I'm going to give you a couple examples of that. Yes. Uh, that was hard to follow along with, I'm sure. But here's an example of how that plays out according to that framework. Three things employers need to know about the Supreme Court's vaccine ruling to avoid liability. So, um, you know, you're talking about, you know, how many, what, it, what, are, what are you going to give them? You're going to give them three things they need to know. Who is, who are you communicating to employers about what? the Supreme Court's recent vaccine ruling. That's obviously, I just sort of made that up. Um, and then why does it matter? Because it's going to help employers avoid liability. Um, so that's an example. Another example where I change things up a little bit, you can see how you can play with these ideas. Five reasons the C-suite may lose sleep over the SEC's new ESG reporting standards. So um, again, it's very similar structure. These are the kind of things you'll see. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I was thinking about with this, Tom, was these sound a little bit, and you tell me what you think, they sound a little bit like clickbaity headlines, don't they? Right? Where you're, you're trying oh. to say, like, here's three things or here's five things, you're going to lose sleep. Like, there is that element to it. I would, I mean, I, I think there is, right, of what we think is clickbait. But then on the other hand, like, the, if it's if it's clickbait, it 
you know, what you're trying to do is get people to click through the article. And the key thing, the key thing is the problem with clickbait as we think about it as a pejorative is that oftentimes the article itself never sort of pays off the promise, right? Right. Here, the presumption is you've got to pay off the promise. Like you've got to really deliver on those five things that, you know, the C-suite needs to know. Otherwise they're going to lose sleep. If you do that, who cares? You know what I mean? Who cares if someone calls your headline clickbait? Like, go for it. Um, so in any event, I, I, I wanted to get your take on that because I, I felt that, but I'm, I'm thinking it's, it's, not the, it's not the headline itself. It's the fact the article doesn't deliver the goods. Well, and it's also too how salacious the bait is, right? So if it's yep. buzzkill or not buzzkill, buzzkill is <laughs> buzzfeed, you know, yep. three things that, you know, your daughter's not telling you in the third thing will shock you, right? Yeah. I mean, that's salacious <laughs> and that's clickbait, but there's nothing wrong with literally baiting a click. Again, that's why you're writing the awesome piece of content to begin with. So I would say in the examples that you provided, I think they were click inducing, but they weren't clickbait. So, you know, mm-hmm. need to know is a great expression to avoid yeah. liability, right? So right. If, if that's true, then that's not really clickbaity. It's not, you know, um, yep. like National Enquirer type stuff. And, you know, loose sleep, uh, maybe it's a little salacious or a little bit, mm-hmm. suggest- but it's, again, if, if it's really great content and it's a very serious issue, then yeah, absolutely. I think the point being is that you should borrow from what made BuzzFeed's headlines work, but don't imitate them. So yes, don't don't exactly. overdo it. But there's a right. reason why that worked. And it used to work yeah. on me too, until I realized, oh, this is just another endless uh, like <laughs> photo gallery, right? It's like, ah. Oh, right, geez. right, right. <laughs> no, that's hilarious. No, and and part of it is, I, you know, I'm trying to, I want it, I want many attorneys to to kind of get a little bit more aggressive or bold with their headlines because, you know, if that's not the problem you're seeing in the legal industry, you're seeing the exact opposite problem, yeah, which is just boring and mundane and, and not at all makes you want to click on the article itself. So, you know, it, at times it feels like it's, you're giving people a reading assignment that they would otherwise dread. And so that's what we got to get legal writing out of that sort of mm-hmm. approach where you're like, I don't want to read that. It's like going back to law school. No, yeah. give them something good to read and give them a great headline to get them there. So, all right, what's yeah. next? All right. Then the next one is basically, um, this is where we're getting into the sort of the body of the, of the article. And the key, the, the key thing here to remember is, you know, in most cases, the way that lawyers are, and others are writing these posts is, you know, introduction, you know, it's all about sort of the facts and what happened. Mm-hmm. And then it builds up to, you know, why it matters. And that's, in, that's sort of at the, at the end, they, the key takeaways are at the end. And we're urging that that script be flipped, that sort of approach inverted, and you're delivering why it matters right up front. And then, you know, you're telling them what happened and and diving a little more deeply into some of the facts um, after that. But you, you've got to give the reader what they want right up front. And you've got to understand how, pe- and, and that's driven by the fact that, um, or informed by the fact that, you know, the way people read online, I mean, think about your own behavior, right? Where you're, you, you might be searching something on Google and it's surfacing like, you know, 10 probably pretty good alternatives to give you the answer you're looking for. And you click one. And if it's not immediately obvious to you that that article is going to deliver or pay off, you're going to go to the next one. Like that's how we operate. So what we're doing is not reading, we're skimming 
to identify whether something's worth reading. And we'll go through a number of articles and cycle through that, many, sometimes maybe even various search terms or whatever, um, before we make that decision to invest in reading something from top to bottom. So if it doesn't have a good headline and it doesn't sort of pay off with the key takeaways right up front, like no one's ever going to read that. Right. Uh, so I think that that's what we're really talking about here um, when it comes to sort of the body of the of the piece. Yep. Adrian Larson from JD Super, who we've had on a couple of times on the podcast, was a big advocate for this. He said, you know, don't try to report the news. There's plenty of publications out there that report the news. They'll do it better than you. And they're already a trusted resource. And this is my words now. I feel like most people know what happened, right? It's the fact that they don't understand what it means or how to change something in their business practice or their life to, to either avoid pain or achieve some sort of gain. So yeah, they already know what happened. But again, going back to the approach is to sit down in front of a blank screen and say, well, in college or in law school, I used to write this way, which was set up the thing at the very beginning, you know, give everyone the details, but that's not how people read anymore. And it's not how you should write anymore. It's for, yeah. like, like you said, get to the payoff right away. And then it's almost like you invert that entire thing, right? At the end, yep. you might even say, here's what exactly happened and a link to, I don't know, the some sort of brief or JD Supra, you might yeah. link to some other news source. But <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, just to give people a sense, and, and they probably get what we're talking about, but you know, I want to just read two like alternative introductions to a blog post about this yeah. fictional Supreme Court decision. Yeah. When does this happen, by the way? When when is this yeah. <laughs> thing coming down? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, Starting with our first uh, what not to do intro on March 13th, 2022, the United States Supreme Court in a five to four decision issued an opinion in the case of party versus party. And then I kind of trail off. So that's how so many posts, if this decision had come down, would have started. Right. Um, Right. Now, an alternative to that that I I wrote and I'll read this uh, now. Okay. To avoid fines and lawsuits, here are three things employers need to know about the Supreme Court's vaccine ruling, colon, thing one, thing two, and thing three. In light of the court's decision, employers and their legal counsel should discuss adopting policy one and policy two. Now let's take a closer look at what the court said and why. So, you know, basically, when you have the first, you know, section, it's like it's this long throat clearing wind up before you get to anything <laughs> that's relevant to the reader, right? Like they know what happened. They know it was in the Supreme Court. They know what the decision was. And all you're doing is just like spending valuable time trying to, you know, reiterate that because you probably couldn't think of any better way to open your article. Now, in the second example, you're just put, laying it all out there. Like here are the three things you need to know. Um and here are a couple of things you may want to do uh, it, related to that or, or in light of that. And, and then let's go. If you want to go any further, here's information. But if you don't, you've got everything you need. I already gave you the answer. Right. Um, and so that, that's the key thing, right? And the, the, the thing is, like, once someone gets through that, like, they're probably going to be intrigued enough because all you did in the first couple of paragraphs was sort of preview the three things they need to know and the two recommendations, right? You gave short shrift to that. That's probably why they're going to then feel invested in the article and want to know more about what those three things are and what those two policy recommendations are. So you've got them, you've got them hooked. Otherwise you lost them. Yep. I I love the fact that, and this is, 
example, even you lead with why, why does it matter to avoid fines and lawsuits? That's the first phrase of your article, which mm -hmm. is great. And so, you know, you've always heard me advocate for this. Why, how, what hierarchy in this three little paragraph examples, why it matters to avoid fines and lawsuits. Um, how so let's talk about the two policies that you should implement and then what ultimately like you said maybe that's where you pay off exactly where uh what happened in in uh in greater detail yeah all right and go ahead and then i was gonna say and then yeah that's how you do the fourth the fourth tip or point was then as you move through the body of your post all you've got to do then is use those three reasons you already defined as your subheaders and then you take a dive, deeper dive and do it. You can tie it back to the court's opinion and the key key holdings and you know all of that. And you've got it nicely organized for the reader from a skimmability standpoint, right? It's like yeah. someone comes into it, they see that concise couple first paragraphs, and then they see these reasons, the things that you promised you would give them, which is those th three reasons to know, and then those couple policy recommendations. And then in your conclusion, you just recap, reiterate, and and off they go and you've got a really well structured blog post yep it's unfortunate that the meticulous detail with which we write blog posts uh, is not mirrored in the way that people read blog posts they like you said first they're going to skim it is this even worth it hmm, seems pretty worth worth it uh worth it let me go back and read a little bit of section one okay i get that now i'm on to section two probably won't even finish that one section three Interestingly enough, that's exactly how I read, to bring this all full circle, the 95.5 article you sent me. Mm -hmm. At first, I skimmed it. I'm like, oh, a little contrarian. Okay, what is the 95.5 rule? I'm skimming to figure out what it is. Okay. Mm. And then I read things like, how are people doing their marketing? The exact opposite way that they should be. And all right, all right now that I go back up to the beginning, eventually I read that whole article, but it wasn't yep. in one sitting and it wasn't yep. from word one to word 1500 that's just how people read. So you have to give them the content in a way that's going to map to how they're going to consume it. Totally. And and that extra investment they made in structure, right? Um, and also like thinking about kind of uh, easy to remember, like terms that they sort of coined, you know, the 95.5 rule, like th these things all matter. I mean, just think about you and I, we've talked about this thing several times. I've written about it in the LinkedIn post. I think you have too. I've now we're talking it. about it on our podcast. We like, talked about it in our training group, the, we did. the Thought Leader Collaborative. We talked yep. about it. So, and, and it's an old, and it's an old idea packaged in a new way, right? I mean, we've, these are things, any, any regular listener to the podcast might be thinking like, well, Day and time, you guys always talk about the importance of like lo the long term and and right. you know delivering value and all this stuff. But we never packaged it quite as quite so well. I would I would say. Yeah, right. And again, we're going to link to it in the show notes. So mm -hmm. the author is going back to what we said about measuring. Like Peter Weinberg and John Lombardo, unless they're listeners to the show, have no idea that we're talking about this article. It was great, yep. but it's made an impact. And now the next time I see their work, I'm going to be like, those are the people that wrote that. And so this has this cumulative effect. But I'm not ready mm -hmm. to buy something for Peter and John today, but who knows? Over time, they might gain enough influence and authority, and I might you know, eventually hire them or call them or have them on the podcast, for example. So that's how it works. Yeah, I was gonna, right. And and probably more importantly for them, like we've, we've maybe exposed thousands between our writing and, and talking about it. We've probably exposed thousands of other people to that idea. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what the real magic is. Um, all right. So let's close it up. So hopefully we've, we've closed the loop right on, uh, you know, the the sort of philosophical framework of content marketing and then did a deep dive into how to think about one of these one of these post structures that we're talking about um 
So that loop is closed. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll get to, maybe I'll open up another one though and say maybe on another show, if people liked kind of that deep dive into the case law breakdown, we can talk about one of these other post structures as well. So we'll see. Let us know by uh, posting about this this episode on LinkedIn and, and tag us and tell us like, hey, do the evergreen analysis or the future forecast. So, oh, I like that. Yep. Yeah. So we're yeah. not technically, we're not gating any content. We're asking for people's mm-hmm. uh, opinion on what they want to hear. We want to okay. know what they want to hear. I mean, exactly. we, gotta, we, we need audience feedback. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, until next time, Jay, I guess uh, I'm going to go read up more on the 80-20 rule and see if I can figure out what that <laughs> thing is. <All> right. <laughs> we're we're going to have an, just as we got rid of uh, overrated, under, underrated, we're going to ban 80-20 rule from the, <laughs> from the show as well. Sounds good. All right. Be All good. Right. See you next time. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.